Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Resin Report Monthly Edition, produced by Plastics Today. Our guest this month is Jeremy Pafford, the North American Head of Market Development at Business Intelligence Firm ICIS. We begin the conversation, as we always do, with a recap of resin pricing trends in the previous month and a look at what might be in store in the months ahead. It's a mixed bag, but according to Pafford, we might begin to see an easing of the supply-demand imbalance if, and yes, it is a big if, the hurricane season on the Gulf Coast doesn't impact supply. We also spend a fair amount of time talking about a proposed ruling from the Securities and Exchange Commission that involves calculating companies' carbon footprints. There are three so-called scopes to this metric, but the one that has the potential to give you a solid migraine is scope three. That would require calculating the carbon footprint of everything that happened upstream before that resin even showed up at your plant. It's a heavy lift, but help is on the way. Pafford has been involved in a collaborative project that will give companies visibility into the carbon footprint and even bring those who are quick on the draw a competitive advantage. So let's get started. Here's my conversation with Jeremy Pafford. Well, hello, Jeremy, and welcome to the Plastic Possibilities Podcast. Hey, Norbert. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, we're delighted to have you. Um, you know, we've got a lot to get to, uh, but let's begin with an update on resin pricing as we do each month. Uh, and let's start with a look back at May. Um, did you see any notable trends? You know, it's been it's been an interesting year, you know, leading up to May and May was really no different. Um, you know, amid the background of, of all the escalation in upstream crude oil prices and such, um, we did not see that uniformly cascade downward into our commodity resins. Um, for example, polyethylene, polypropylene prices uh, fairly subdued. We saw a look at it in May. You know, there's some some capacity additions that are coming later this year that way on the market, as well as um, overall some some, some you know, pretty decent uh, balance from a supply demand standpoint. Um, so those saw some fairly um, you know. They were they were not nearly as as charged up as some of the other commodity resins like a PET, uh, which is very much been you know been affected by crude oil because of the paraxylene uh, component upstream, which is directly out of the refining stream. And we've all seen how the gasoline prices are and such. Quite frankly, um, it's not nearly as economically um, conducive to want to produce that paraxylene right now because what could be used for that they're using to blend into gasoline. Because the because the value is so great to do it, so that's that's raised the the, the PX prices upstream of PET has raised uh, put the added heat in a market that already has has seen several price increases this year, but you've had polystyrene prices are still you know still had some some momentum behind them in May um, because of upstream outages in styrene had a lot of outages in styrene that has really weighed on being able to produce as much polystyrene as demand uh, is dictating. Demand's still been good there. And PVC, PVC has had, you know, it's very high prices domestically. That that um, may be peaking now. We'll see. You know, it seems like we, we you know, everybody's kind of thought at certain points PVC prices would have peaked and then something else happens. It's been very much of a Murphy's Law type of thing in that market for the past couple of years. Um, but supply is very much improving there. Now we just got to get through the hurricane season there and hopefully not have as bad of ones as we've had for the PVC uh, producing areas of Louisiana uh, as we've had the past couple of years. 
it's always something, right? If it's not yeah. the supply, it's the hurricanes. <laughs> Anyways, yes. with all of that in mind, um, do you have any thoughts on what plastics processors should be looking for in June and the months following? Well, you know, the big questions are going to be kind of, you know, all eyes really still are, are upstream in regards to what your what your energy costs are going to be and, and your fuel costs. Because, you know, while, for example, North American polyethylene is not made out of the barrel of crude oil, it's made out of ethane and shale gas. Um, there, you know, those prices have risen a little bit because natural gas prices have gone up. All of our energy costs from, you know, that to produce electricity or to transport um, our materials have all gone up. So that, that's that's stuff we're going to be watching about there too and seeing if consumer demand downstream of the processors um, gets weighed down by the continued inflation, the higher gasoline prices in a time of the year where you're expecting, uh, you know, substantial more demand from the consumer as they try to get out and about during the summer. Uh, that's going to be something to watch for. But at the same time, you know, from a, from a resin supply standpoint, you know, and I say all this, on the baseline of we navigate through hurricane season on the Gulf Coast, um, okay, there's always a one in four chance uh, in a year that this would be the time where we get a major hurricane that takes supply offline. That's based upon some historical um, data that I've analyzed. The, you know, barring that happening, um, you know, we should have supply come and demand come more into balance, and you start to see more of a you know, for those markets that have been high priced, perhaps see some peaking um, and, and and maybe some some relief come the second half of this year. Uh, for some, that you, you could expect a, a very competitive marketplace going forward, uh, particularly with polyethylene with the new capacities that are coming online here toward the end of this year. Um, that tends to mean that there's more people competing for business, and that tends to to change pricing toward the downside. Polypropylene is adding some capacity. Uh, this year as well. Again, same situation. More supply on the marketplace tends to want to, uh, you know, people start trying to scurry to get get their customers. So you could definitely see more of a of a um, letting out of the the wind out of the sails on those two resins. Uh, the other ones are going to probably be a little bit slower to come downward. Um, not really any kind of major capacity additions that we're seeing in the near term that would add supply um, and, and really help meet some you know strong demand. But broadly speaking, all eyes have to be in regards to the economy, what we're seeing in regards to uh, the, the data that's coming out regarding consumer demand and sentiment, because ultimately that's going to play into what the, uh, you know, what the demand for the plastic products are going to be. Good stuff. Thanks for, for those insights. Uh, so let's pivot to a, a topic I, I know that you've been thinking about, which is companies' carbon footprints and the proposed SEC rule that is going to have an impact on that. Uh, in fact, you wrote an excellent article last month for Plastics Today on that very topic, which I will link to in the introduction to the podcast. For now, though, why don't you tell us about the proposed SEC rule and why the plastics industry should pay attention? Yeah, this is this has taken up a lot of my time in the past couple of months as 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 I've delved into this subject and we've been working on some some partnerships data wise with that. You know, the the Securities and Exchange Commission earlier this year proposed a rule um, that says, you know, if it's enacted, it's going to require companies registered with it, but that's publicly traded companies as well as some pro, uh, some private companies that are registered with them as well. To disclose um, their their assorted climate related risks 
to the business, as well as information about their direct, indirect, and value chain global house gas emissions. Um, you know, that's to bring visibility um, to investors and markets and such about the impact um, these companies um, have in their in, do, in doing business uh, towards the environment. Uh, this has been something that has emanated on the consumer end of things pretty heavily. That has a lot, you know, this is very much connected to the movement toward recycling, sustainability, and circularity. Um, and you've seen it in the investment community, you've seen a growing movement of, of hedge funds being created or, or investments, um, major investors saying, we want to put our money in companies that are publicly showing that they are doing good on the environment or working to, to make it a better world. Um, and one of the ways the SEC views is you know, maybe aiding the, the visibility with that is this rule. This was proposed in March. Uh, it's in a public comment period right now. It's been very, there's been a lot of public comment on it. It actually was extended to the middle part of June, uh, that period. Um, once that period is done, they'll take that the comments under advisement and they'll decide whether they're going to put it in the federal register. And if it does, then that becomes, um, you know, it'll become the policy, become a rule. And that will make companies, um, you know, not just your chemical companies um, or your brand owners, but even processors that are you know, publicly traded have to disclose um, their emissions up and down, you know, up the supply chain to them. Um, and then obviously include what they're doing as well, communicate that downwards um, to their customers. So that, um, um, my limited knowledge of this, uh, admittedly, but that calls into uh, that, or, or that um, brings into uh, the conversation the scopes, right? Scope one, two, right. and three. Um, so uh, I think I get, I can gather what uh, what's involved here. But what do those scopes mean exactly? Yeah, they, and they can be a little bit confusing. So I, I always try to break it down like this. Scope one is is the most direct. Okay, I I, I run a, a a I might run a packaging operation. Um, scope one emissions from my packaging operations are what I directly emit carbon wise um, from from running that business right there. When when I turn the plant on, this is how much we emit. Okay, this direct, pretty straightforward. Scope two is okay. Well, what's the emissions for the uh, for the energy? Uh, electricity that uh, is used to power my my operation. Again, fairly straightforward. They call those indirect. Um, it, it, you're basically talking about uh, just a couple different you know inputs that you would have to probably communicate with there to figure out the scope tools. Scope three is the most difficult one um, because it is basically everything upstream of that processor. What's the accumulated carbon inputs that have occurred within that to get to your doorstep to where you can do your operations? Um, that you know, the farther down the chain that you get, uh, the the more accumulations you can have, and then you know because of that, more than sixty percent of the greenhouse gas emissions that come from operating plant are scope three. They're what's accumulated upstream. And that because of that, you know, think about somebody that is an ABS converter. Okay, ABS is acrylic nitrile butadiene styrene. 
three different chemicals come from three different processes. If you're sitting there trying to figure out the accumulated uh, carbon footprint of that, you'd have to not just know who produced your ABS pellet, but did they also produce the, the, the A, the B, and the S? Well, if they didn't, they bought it from somebody else. So you got to get figure that one out there. It keeps on going. You can see where this can get to be a very uh, a, a very taxing operation trying to figure this out on your own. Um, so, you know, from that, that's, you know, this is what has a lot of companies out there concerned. Um, in fact, I had a conversation at, at most recent Plastics Industry Association spring board meeting, um, was over here in a conversation with a guy with, next to me at lunch uh, who was a converter um, who said, you know, scope one and two is easy. Scope three is, is, is extremely difficult. Um, and I can understand why it would be a, a, a harrowing situation because there's just so many, there can be so many inputs upstream of that. Yeah. You know, I guess one question that um, I would have is, so aren't pellets pretty much the same regardless of where they are sourced? I mean, how much difference can there be in their carbon footprint? Yeah. And, that, and that's a really good question. Is, is, is an HDPE pellet an HDPE pellet no matter what? And, and, you know, and technically, basically every HDP, HDPE pellet um, can pretty much be the same thing. However, all the carbon that was used or, or em, em, emitted in the process of doing that can be drastically different based upon um, you know, the feedstocks that were used, the processing technology upstream. That was a HCP is a fairly straightforward material. I mean, you're going, you know, chemically, you've got to have a feedstock that can either be, you know, it could come from crude oil to naphtha to ethylene to polyethylene, or it could be ethane to, to, to ethylene to polyethylene, or you just, you know, there's not as many rungs in that. However, we've got data that shows that the worst carbon footprint globally for an HTPE pellet, that production process, and that location, and that actual plant, is 11 times worse on the carbon-intensive side than the best globally. And the, and the, you know, the, the worst, that, that worst one is actually a plant in China. The best one, the plant in Brazil, the particular plant. Uh, this is type of data we've been working on. And we, we've done this. You know, we, we've partnered um, with a company uh, called Carbon Mines to, to do this, not just for HDPLs, but you know, obviously across the chemical chain as well. Um, and it's some fascinating information that you can see through that just to see the the broad scope of how this, um, how much difference there really can be. Uh, when you start thinking about the, 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 the the ability to possibly, you know, change up your sourcing to mitigate some of your carbon emissions uh, footprint um, issues that could come up from this ESG movement, environmental and social governance uh, movement. Um, the opportunities to really future-proof your business and put them on the right foot is, it, you know, it's enormous. Wow, well, that is fascinating, um, and I'm sure it's something that a lot of uh, plastics processors aren't really thinking about or are are certainly not able to deal with at this point. So tell us more about the partnership with Carbon Mines and how that might benefit plastic. Sure. Okay, Carbon Mines is a group of, of, of that has been really focused on on the carbon footprints of, of, of chemicals. Um, but they but they partnered with us because we have a, a, a supply-demand database that uh, is very, very extensive in regard to not just Here's the plant, who owns it, and here's its capacity. But we also know 
the technological processes behind that production, what feeds into it, what's the different feedstock slates that go into it. And the particular strength is getting further and further down the chains where you wind up having um, you know, multiple inputs. You think about a material like PET. Um, you know, it's that's a it's an engineered resin. There's there's a couple different tracks. You got the PX side of it. You got the the MEG side of it. And the PX side of it has an acetic acid part. To, there's multiple rungs to it. Each of these have accumulated carbon footprints within them. And as companies have to start reporting this, um, you know, you're going to be able to you're going to have companies out there that are going to say, look, our supplier um, portfolio here is very carbon intensive when we compare it to the rest of the country, to our competitors, rest of the world, et cetera. Or you can expect to have um, investors start to you know, pressure us or, you know, quite frankly, you know, it could be government policy that starts to pressure us. How are we going to um, mitigate our risk in regard to this? Well, having the ability to see, you know, who would be your possible changes of suppliers, or if you're in a better spot there too, uh, I, I put this in a pers perspective from a chemical producer. If I was a resin producer and I see this data and I see that I'm producing some of the most carbon, um, least carbon intensive resin products in the world, I could feel empowered to, to charge a premium. I've got a premium product at that point. At that point, my HTPE is not just like any other HTPE pellet. It is way more environmentally friendly than the ones at the farther end that are way more carbon intensive you know vice versa if i'm somebody that's having to market a pellet that is pretty carbon intensive uh, i might have to discount that long term you know because i could almost say it's off spec it very much could this this has the potential to dramatically alter the marketplace as not only you know, is it, you know, is this LDPE or LDPE? You know, is it carbon intensive LDPE? Is it carbon light LDPE? Things like that. You could actually see some differentiation long term in the marketplace because of this. Um, the carbon, the carbon mines people have got the, the scientific brains behind this. We've got the analytical tools and the skills behind it. So the coming together of this um, has been really, really good. It, it's going to be a product called Supplier Carbon Footprints. We're actually uh, going to roll it out this summer. It looks like probably late June. Um, and it's going to be, it's it's one of the coolest projects I've worked on because it is so relevant in the time. I mean, it very well could be rolling out there at the same time that, you know, the, the SEC rule goes into effect. So it'd be perfect timing. Oh, I'm sure it seems like it. And um, yeah, that, that sounds great. Um, so how, how can listener, listeners learn more about this program? What should they do? Um, well, you know, we, we will be, you know, making further announcements in regard to it when it when it launches and things like that. We, we you know, we are definitely doing a, a pretty good uh, PR campaign coming up in regard to it. The ICIS.com website, as well as the CarbonMines.com website, um, has information on it as well. Um, if you catch me at a conference, which I typically go to a few of these, particularly uh, uh, this summer and in and, and, and the fall, um, you know, you can stop me right there, and I'll I'll preach the virtues of it. Quite frankly, you know, we we we're, we've been talking to you know we've already had companies that would help us out on a beta with this that just went ahead and signed up for it already. So we just need this data now. Mm -hmm. we, we 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 like it already. That's pretty cool to me. And quite frankly, if you know, from my perspective, 
I'm pretty easy to reach uh, by email at jeremy.pafford at icis.com. So if you're hearing this and have any interest in this immediately, please get in touch with me. I'll, I'll get you connected to the right people. Fantastic. And we'll definitely be covering this when you roll it out uh, in plastics today as well. So um, that's great. Well, uh, I think we've covered it all. Uh, thank you so much, Jeremy, for sharing those insights. Thank you, sir. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye for now. 